we had a wonderful Christmas party for the class. If y'all were not there, uh, uh, you missed out. If you were there, then uh, 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 I'm sure you agree we had fun. Meanwhile, whether there or not, y'all all went together and got Becky and I a really incredibly special gift. And uh, uh, I want to say thank you. And she says thank you as well. Um, uh, it's, uh, uh, you'll have to come see it. It's in our train station. It's a beautiful stained glass picture of the train and uh, of our train. And so we're, we were honored and touched. Now, having said that, <clears throat> this is an interesting Sunday for me. It's an interesting Sunday for several perspectives. First of all, I have my life in this room today. Um, I always grew up wanting to be one of, of uh, three things, and I only made two of them. I either wanted to be a preacher or I wanted to be a lawyer. Or, as if I couldn't do either of those, I'd go into politics. But... Um, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Gee, why such three honest professions? <laughs> Trial law, politics, and preaching. Um, uh, I, I never, never did the, the full-time vocational preaching, but my childhood preacher, who was an inspiration for me to want to go that direction, is over here watching this morning, sitting on the front row, making sure I don't mess up. I went the law thing, though some people say I've never really quite gotten that down either, and sitting on the third row over here is the dean of my law school, making sure I don't mess up. <laughs> and as for politicians, while Representative Harless is out with the flu today, we do have Debbie Riddle, state representative, sitting on the second row, thanking God I never went into politics. <laughs> so with that as an interesting morning, we shall begin. We are studying, for those of you who are visiting either for the first time or, or in, in succession to how you visited before, we are studying church history in this class. We've gone through 43 lessons. Today's the 44th lesson. We've made it up through the 1300s. Technically, not totally. I mean, I should have done Thomas Aquinas today, St. Thomas Aquinas, but I got a lot to read before I can do that. Our son is like an Aquinas expert, has studied and written on Aquinas at Oxford University, and he just frankly told me I didn't have what it took to teach it yet. So <laughs> I've told him, fine, you write it, then I'll teach it. So he's working on it, and um, uh, uh, that will be ready to go when we hit January, and then we're going to propel pretty quickly into the Reformation movement. Uh, um, so I'm excited about that. That means in one year we've made it from... 33 or so A.D. up through the 1300s. Now, next Sunday is our last class for this year. And next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Christmas as a church holiday and, and how it is that the church came about celebrating Christmas. We'll look at a famous saint uh, that we actually know about three lines about from the 300s. Uh, uh, his name was Nicholas. And St. Nicholas uh, uh, will be the subject of discussion. We will be quite candid and quite blunt. I say that for any of you who bring in young children. Um, they will uh, 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 be exposed to uh, not only biblical concepts and not only church history concepts. By the way, biblical concepts are pretty sparse on Christmas. Uh, they didn't celebrate birthdays in biblical times. Uh, uh, we'll look at church history concepts. And we may look at a few modern inventions and see where they came from as well. So it'll be an interesting class, I hope, for everyone. And, and I've heard lots of things in my life about what Christmas is and where it came from. My uh, commitment to you is I'm not just going to give you the information, but I'm going to give you the actual sources 
so that you can go back and look and say, oh, yeah, here we see it written in history where it's this or that. And it's not going to be what he said, she said, they thought. It, we'll try to chase it down as close as we can. Now, having said that, this morning we are going to Dante and his uh, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, which is his three most stellar works that he's famous for, famous enough for us to deal with them in this class. Dante is an abbreviation of a name, Durante. Uh, actually, it'd be Durante, but uh, like Jimmy Durante. Okay? You take his last name and you abbreviate it, and it's, it's Dante. Um, uh, so uh, that's who the guy is. His last name is Alighiero, but it's spelled differently by different people, so we don't quite know how to spell it. That seems to be the best guess. I threw it up there. Um, he was a poet. He wrote poetry uh, in the late 1200s, early 1300s. And not only was he a poet, but he was a theologian at the same time. Um, uh, I've read some judicial opinions from judges who write in poetry form. Uh, it's pretty sorry. And they <laughs> needed to, to just stick to law or try to go learn how to be a poet. Um, uh, but uh, uh, Dante managed to do both. He was both a poet and a theologian, well-trained in each. But he was not only those two things, he was also a social commentator. He spoke out about what was going on in his world, in his community, and in his own life. And he did it very strongly. Um, ultimately, what we're going to be looking at today is his major work, The Divine Comedy. Dante did not call it divine. He merely called it the comedy. Divine was added about uh, 75 years later by someone who was transcribing it because we're still pre-printing press. Um, the Divine Comedy is interesting. It is a work of poetry. It is a work of theology. And it is a work of social, of, uh, social comment. Um, what it is not, in a sense is uh, a comedy, okay? It's not a ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, isn't that funny, comedy. It's a comedy in the Latin sense of the word comedia, uh, comoedia, excuse me, which means basically it has a good ending. The main character finds something at the end that makes life worthwhile. If you go back and read the ancient Greek comedies, same thing, they're not funny. Oh, they've got a few humorous lines. And I mean, there's some nice irony that bites in Dante's writings that I find humorous in a sense. But it's not Three Stooges, ha, 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 funny, okay? I mean, it's just, it's not in there. Um, it is a poem, as I told you. And as a poem, it has a rhyming pattern. Now, the last we talked about poems in this class was in the New Testament. We looked at a couple of poetic passages. When we did our biblical literacy class, we looked at Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry was, was, was um, marked by a style where one line would be repeated by another line that's got the same kind of meaning or maybe the exact opposite meaning. And, and it's these couplets that repeat each other in some way. It's called parallelism that marks out Hebrew poetry. American poetry, if we had grown up, uh, my dad was famous for, for quoting American poetry. His favorite was, roses are red, violets are blue, most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. <laughs> so I grew up with <laughs> culture with a capital K from my dad. And uh, I grew up uh, uh, learning poetry rhymed, okay? 
that really is an invention of the church. If we ever get to that blasted class on church music history that I keep telling us we will do, we're going to learn that it's the church music, even going back to, to uh, Gregorian chants and medieval church music, where rhyming started being placed in because it sounded better when you sang it. And so it's church history that brought rhyming into poetry. All of the old ancient poets, Virgil, uh, 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 Cato, you name any of the old ancient poets, they didn't rhyme. But Dante does. Dante rhymes. Uh, Dante rhymes with this rhyming scheme. A, B, A. Right? In other words, class, care, pass. Got dean of the law school. I must go to class because I care if I pass. <laughs> ABA. Now, Dante doesn't leave it with ABA. After the ABA, then he goes B, C, D. Dare to stare. So, that being said, shall I dare to see the test that's... Uh, well, actually, it's not going to end in two, but somehow I better not stare because I'd be accused of copying. Okay, I had this rhyme in my brain. It was going to work. It doesn't. Now, <laughs> it's my dad. Some points rhyme, but this one doesn't. Um, you see the rhyme scheme. Okay, that's what he does. The next lines would have been C, um, D, C, and then D, E, D, and then E, F, E, on and on and on. Now, he got away with doing that a whole lot easier because he's in Italian. And those words rhyme so much better than English. Our language is not a good rhyming language. But, I mean, you've got tortellini, um, yeah, yeah, the, the linguini, fettuccine. I mean, the, 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 the foods alone can keep you going through two or three pages. you got ravioli, you got cannolis. you got... Uh, it's a very rhyming language, although it's interesting... Not only does, does Dante manage to rhyme... And by the way, when I say he's written these poems, I'm not talking about like this. This is three big old works. This is long. Okay? Every line that ends with that rhyming word has 11 syllables exactly in the Italian. 11 syllables. And Dante's poem is what became modern Italian. See, at the time Dante's writing... Anybody who writes anything writes in Latin. The vulgar or the common tongues aren't used for anything of posterity. Dante's writing at a time where there are 12 different dialects being spoken in Italy. Depending on where you are, he's in Florence, so he speaks the Florentine dialect. But because his poem is so powerful and conquers, in essence the civilized part of Italy. It is what becomes modern Italian. It's like Germany had countless, dozens of German dialects, but once Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, the dialect Martin Luther used became modern German because of the prevailing, prevalence, whatever the word is, uh, uh, of, the, of the Bible, of the influence that's there. So this becomes modern Italian. Now, why? Those are all interesting points. And if this were an English class, I could spend a lot more time with them. But why are we studying Dante and church history? Several reasons. First of all, this is a monumental Christian writing. This is, for a thousand years, the monumental Christian writing. 
This hugely influenced not only the church, but perceptions. I'll tell you, it influences our perceptions today. The deepest level of hell is reserved for him. That's a Dante concept. Um, There is theological insight in this. I love it. Now, I do not read Dante's Inferno or his Purgatory or his Paradise to sculpt my theology of the end worlds and what happens when you die. I don't think that that's necessarily even why he was writing it. It's his imagination, it's his allegory to teach us lessons in part of how to live today. And it's an interesting approach. It's much like, um, uh, in fact, my third reason is the inspiration it had on others. Milton's Paradise Lost. C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. Um, uh, uh, Countless Christian writers have written off of inspiration from what Dante did. So it's worth studying. He's not only influenced uh, 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 Christians and Christian literature and Christian art and Christian theology, but he's also influenced uh, uh, the general art world. Uh, You can find countless people who do artistic works off of this. Here's one you may know. Rodin's Thinker. On Top of the Gates of Hell. That's exactly right. A big sculpture Rodin did called The Gates of Hell. And uh, you can find one of them out at Stanford University. You can find a copy uh, uh, at the Western Art Museum in Japan. Um, If you look up here at the top, over the gates of hell, that is the thinker. That's where it comes from. That's where Rodin put it. If we bow it up and get it from another angle, you can see that was supposed to be Dante contemplating the gates of hell. Of course, Rodin did this in the late 1800s, so he didn't have a clue what Dante looked like. I frankly don't think Dante had my build. But (laughs) in my imagination but uh, and dreams. uh, But the gates of hell was something that Rodin did, and and, uh, uh, that's what he has. Now, Dante was a Christian, and uh, uh, Dante understood uh, to some degree the Trinity, And the most holy number at Dante's time of writing is three because that's the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Dante structures his whole comedy around threes. And it's really interesting to see. It's in three volumes. Volume one, hell. Volume two, purgatory. Volume three, heaven. He's got it not only in three volumes, but each volume is divided up into cantos or sections or chapters, I guess we could call it. 33 in each section. Now, he's actually got 100. So the first one, he doesn't count as belonging to any of the three sections. He wants to make it real clear. Each of the three books has exactly 33. The first section is an introduction. And he makes that clear because he wants us to understand the importance and complete number three in the way he does it. Now, remember I said he rhymes in, in, in triplets, the ABA, the BCB, and each line's got how many syllables? 11. So three times 11, each section's got 33 syllables. And you'll find threes throughout the poetry, throughout the books. Uh, uh, I mean, even when we get to Satan, he's got three heads. And all three heads mock the three parts of God, the Trinity. Um, While God's three heads include power, Satan's is impotent. God's is wisdom, Satan's is ignorance. It's, it's, it's a fascinating read. But we're going to structure our class out of Dante's number three. By the way, I tried to write a brief uh, 
uh, section of this class at the beginning of your handout with the rhyme scheme and 11 syllables per. Um, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> and fortunately for y'all, I ran out of time, so you only have the first you know, half of a page written in rhyme. The rest of it's gone back to me. Um, but here's what we'll do. Let's look briefly at Dante's life. Let's consider the comedy, the, the three-volume work, and then we'll have our points for home. Dante's life. Uh, his parents died when he was young. His mother, somewhere between the ages of five and eight, was Dante when his mother died. His father died when Dante was 18. Dante came into his inheritance, inheritance at that time. In the third grade, okay, he didn't have grades the way we do, but he was nine years old, so I'm calling it the third grade so we can relate it to children. He had a crush uh, he calls it his one true love, but Donny Osmond would say it was puppy love. <laughs> Thinking old music today, um, if you can call the 60s and 70s old. Um, third grade crush on the beautiful Beatrice, but alas, it was not to be. Beatrice went to someone else, and at the bright and early age of 12, Dante got engaged to another woman. We don't know exactly when they married, but he did have at least three kids. Some scholars think four. Some think five. We don't have all of it in great detail. I will tell you this. In Florence, he was a, a bon vivant. He was a man about town. He was quite a good guy. He had obviously compelling intellect. He was very loquacious and good with words. But the problem in Florence at the time was fighting between the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. The Guelphs win the fight... And Dante is a Guelph, but the Guelphs themselves were divided up into two different groups, the black Guelphs and the white Guelphs. And uh, bless his heart, Dante was in the wrong group. And they kind of lost out. And so while Dante's visiting the Pope in Rome, and the Pope seems to have had some idea this was going on. By the way, when I told you Dante does social commentary, he has no qualms putting in his book exactly who's in hell and who's not in his life. Okay, I, he's got popes in hell. He's got popes in purgatory, popes in heaven. He's got. He has no qualms at saying, "My next door neighbor, he's in the deepest pit of hell because of what." He, well, actually, his next door neighbor's not in the deepest pit, but I mean, he's got these people. He lays it out there and tells you why they're there and what they belong for. Um, uh, but uh, when he finds himself on the wrong side of the civil war. Arguably, because the Pope knows what's going on and the Pope wants to keep Dante. Dante at the time is one of the seven mayors of Florence. Uh, he got to hold that job for a whole two months. Um, the Pope holds on to Dante while Dante wants to go back. And when Dante's not back and the, the, the anti-Dante Guelphs, you with me, um, take over, they fine Dante for being gone. And they hold him in trial because he can't pay his fine. Of course, he doesn't know any of this. The FedEx machines aren't working. The, the fax machines aren't working. The, the Internet's down. He doesn't know what's going on. He just knows the Pope wants to hold on to him for a while longer. And how do you say no to the Pope when you're an Italian Catholic, right? So he's there with the Pope. The Pope knows what's going on, though, and holds on to Dante long enough for him not only to fine him, but to try him in absentia because he doesn't show up to pay his fine and sentence him to death. So if Dante returns to Florence, where his wife and kids are, he gets killed, executed. So Dante lives the rest of his life in exile. And he takes to the pen and he starts writing. Needless to say, that Pope's <laughs> not like really flourishing in Dante's mind. 
Um, so Dante writes uh, uh, during the next 20 years that he lives, and uh, he lives in exile from Florence. He writes the Divine Comedy. I don't know how well these pictures are going to show up, but it's just an absolute pity to teach Dante and not have some good pictures because it's been the use of such art. So we'll do the best we can. This is a, a painting of Dante. That's supposed to be Dante standing there. And these are the three main sections. We've got the gates of hell, the terraces of purgatory, and uh, uh, I guess... Uh, uh, the New Jerusalem, in essence, of uh, paradise. We're going to start with hell, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time there. So um, uh, unbutton your collar, cool off a little bit, and be thankful that uh, we're not there. Um, with that, we will start uh, uh, his Divine Comedy in the Inferno. Here's the way he tells it, and I'm going to do this not rhyming. Dante says, I got lost in a deep woods. And it was dark, and I couldn't find my way out. And, I, you know, he's, he's, the, the mountains are around me, and, and I got scared. And it was dismal. And I thought I saw a path that led up the mountain to some sunlight. I thought, okay, that's my way out. So I started to go up the path, and uh, there was a, uh, a, a leopard in my way. And it scared me to death. So I just kind of waited, but the leopard wouldn't move. So I tried to find another way around. I thought I found another way around, but there was a lion in the way. I waited out the lion, but the lion wouldn't move. I slowly backed away, and I tried to find a third way around. A she-wolf. Not enough, it's a wolf. It's a she-wolf. That's like really bad, okay? Um, Dante said it. I didn't. So there's a she-wolf there. And he says, I was petrified. I didn't know what to do. I was lost. I waited out the day. I couldn't. And by the way, he tells us you can reconstruct when it is. This is the night at this point of Good Friday, Easter week, okay? The night of Good Friday. So he's there and he says, I don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, as, he, as he's lost and bewildered, this man comes up to him who is Virgil, the Latin poet. Now, Virgil died a few decades before Jesus came. Um, he wrote the Aeneid which was uh, one of the, thanks to Homer's Odyssey and Iliad, the, the famous classical works of poetry. Virgil shows up, and Virgil says, okay, I'm your tour guide. Come on with me. And he says, where are we going? He says, we're going to hell. Don't say, I don't want to go to hell. Well, yeah, you've got to go to hell, but don't worry, you're not going to end there. Then I'm going to take you to purgatory, and then you get to see paradise. And Dante says, really? You're taking me to paradise? No, I'm not allowed there. I wasn't a Christian. Um, uh, you got Beatrice, your nine-year-old third-grade crush. She's going to show you around in paradise, in heaven. Dante says, oh, that sounds pretty good. Okay, well, I'd trust Beatrice anywhere because in third grade she was really something. So he says, uh, uh, I, am, I am on your, your card. So they start going. Now, um, uh, that's a picture of him meeting Virgil. In that picture, it kind of is bad because Virgil looks like a girl. Um, but I never saw Virgil, so maybe... He did look like a girl. Um, but uh, those are the lions and the she-bears and whatever. Now, Dante then begins this journey, and Dante goes ultimately into the gates of hell themselves. I mean, there are gates there. Before he goes into the gates, he's in the limbo area, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But he passes through the gates, and above the gates of hell is written, Leave every hope, you who enter in, leave every hope. You don't go to hell with hope. There is no hope in hell. Now, we need to look at Dante's world for a minute. Christopher Columbus, what year? 
1492. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. See, we have poetry. Um, Columbus understood the world was round. They didn't really understand that before. Some suspected it. Dante didn't think the world was round. He thought it was kind of like an inverted bowl. Okay? He's got to, you, if you, and, and, and Dante, you see, these guys didn't have 21st century science in their brains. So they thought that hell, Dante thought hell was a literal physical place under the earth. See, I knew better. When I was in second grade, I started digging in the backyard. I didn't fear that I was going to go through hell. I just thought if I dug long enough, I could get a shortcut to China. Okay? He didn't have that mentality. See, so Dante and Virgil, they descend into hell. They go down, down, down in the, in the earth. And once they get to hell, uh, 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 it's interesting, the center of gravity shifts. And they climb out the other way into the southern hemisphere. And that's where they found the mountain of purgatory. Dante's hell is in circles because of that. And, and so each level gets smaller and smaller as it goes down deeper and deeper, but it's in a circle, see? So you have the first level of hell, and the second, and the third, etc., etc. Whoops, there we go. All right? Now he starts out, level one is limbo. This is for people who have not been baptized. But, uh, so you, uh, not Christians, but weren't really so offensive. A lot of them are people who didn't live, bef- uh, who lived before Christ. It's interesting. Uh, this is before you get to the gates proper. And so the way Dante taught it, Dante said that, uh, Dante asks uh, Virgil, he says, anybody ever get out of here? Virgil says, you know, it's the weirdest thing. He says, I've been here for a couple of decades when this guy comes in who's got this crown of victory and he's able to take out of here a whole bunch of people. Do you know any of them? Yeah, guys like Abraham, David, and he starts naming all of the, the people in the Old Testament. And the man with the victory, of course, was Jesus. And Jesus invades hell in Dante's teaching, thought, and brings back those that did not belong there because at whatever level they had, uh, they had put their faith in God. But level one is limbo. These are the unbaptized. Level two, we're going to make it through these fairly quickly because uh, uh, we've got a lot to cover. Um, I've just picked out a few of my favorite passages to talk about. Level two, um, this is the picture. These are human bodies, and they're being swept around by this turbulent wind. And the moaning is intense, and the cries of despair are incredible. Don't think just because there are levels of hell that some are nicer than others. All of the people in hell are in absolute misery. It's just they're in a particular misery that corresponds to the life they led the way Dante tells it. So these people are in a hellish, pardon the pun, hurricane, which never rests. It drives on the spirits violently with its violence. It wheels them about. It pounds them. It smashes them up against the cliffs. You know who's in this level? These are people who sin within the flesh, subjecting reason to the rule of lust. The adulterers, the people who um, uh, uh, made a decision that they would live their life whipped around by the winds of passion will spend eternity whipped around by those same winds of passion. 
But once you get to eternity, it's stripped of the veneer of attractiveness it has on this earth. And it's shown for the hellish nightmare it really is. Um, level two. This is filled with a cold, unending, heavy, and accursed rain. There are gross hailstones. There's water that's gray with filth. It stinks. But you just get this picture of constant, inundating rain. Filthy, driving, rain, cold. Anybody care to guess? Gluttons. These are the gluttons in life that always want more. Give me more, give me more, give me more. They're never satisfied. And he says they spend eternity getting more and more and more. Again, stripped of the veneer. But it's a driving, unending, heavy, battering rain. One of my favorite levels is level three. Level three, now I don't know how well you can see this picture. Um, this is done by this lady up in Indianapolis who's an artist who uh, didn't copyright her pictures on the internet, so I'm trusting I can use them. Um, these level three, now remember this is in a circle. So he doesn't quite, she doesn't quite have, the artist doesn't quite have this down the way I envision it. It's in a circle, like a donut ring, okay? These are people who have these massive, heavy boulders, and they're pushing them. They're so heavy, they've got to push them with their chest. And they're pushing them in a ring. And half of them go one way, and the other half go the other way. The half that go this way to the left, they're misers in life who spend their life grubbing and holding on to every penny they can, fighting for every dime and holding it. And they spend eternity pushing that boulder. You know who's on the other side? The squanderers. The people in life who have the money but just squander it aimlessly, just spend frivolously, just throw it away instead of living responsibly. They wind up in the same level of hell for Dante. And they're pushing their boulders. And the ironic part about it is, this is where it's almost kind of a comedy, is what happens if you've got two people at one end of a donut starting out together and one pushes around the donut one way, their big boulder, and the other the other way. At the opposite side, they meet. And they start yelling at each other. And one of them, see, i got the meeting here. There he is yelling. He says, why do you squander? You know what the other one says? Well, why do you hoard? And they just try to get each other to move out of the way, and they won't, so for eternity at that point, they turn around and start pushing their boulder back where it came from. Yeah, it's stuck in Houston traffic forever, Dorothy added. <laughs> just come right back to the other side. And this is their eternity, because they could never, ever, ever see money as gods that they're stewards of to use responsibly. So they'll spend eternity with it being a heavy stone. Husband-wife teams. Husband, teams, yeah, that's a, a great idea Ellen has. The husband's pushing one way and the wife the other. You know, it's a pity in life they could never both sort of neutralize each other and find that nice middle ground. Um, how about the next level? The next level's got people in eternity hitting each other. Not only with their hands, they're hitting with their heads. They're doing headbutts. They're doing chest hits. They're hitting with their feet and kicking. They're tearing each other into pieces with their teeth. 
Now, the, this picture is not as wonderful as it should be because the way Dante sets this up, they're in a swamp that's just all muck and mire. Do you know who these people are? The souls of those whom anger has defeated. See the poetic justice? Now, at this point, we've hit the levels that are actively anti-God. Those others, they weren't anti-God. That's just their predominant sin. These that are actively anti-God, in the sixth circle, you've got arch-heretics. These are the major heretics of the faith. You've got some popes here, okay? Um, uh, Dante put them there. I didn't. And uh, uh, he's got them, and they're encased in their tomb with their heads. Their heads are in the tomb, and their feet are subjected to being burned in flames. Um, the seventh circle has three rings within it. And these are the violent people. Okay? Um, ring one is those that were violent against others. And they're stuck in eternity in boiling blood. They would take blood from others, so now they live eternity in a river of boiling blood. Um, the second circle, or second ring within this seventh circle, are those who are violent against themselves, suicides. And he's got them, and they've turned into these gnarled trees and branches. And harpies come and break off twigs and spend eternity hurting them. Um, his third ring are those that are violent against God and his creation. And he's got several of them. Now, they're in a... Uh, uh, I've covered up Dante there. Sorry, Dante. And Virgil both. But the, the violent against God are in a de desert area, dry and barren. And there are flames that are raining down upon them. Not raindrops, but, but flames are, are being, coming down from the sky against them. The violent against God are blasphemers who spend eternity on their backs looking up at God in heaven after spending a lifetime of blaspheming him and looking away from him and mocking him. Um, in addition, there are those who are violent against creation. And he's got two different kinds here. He's got uh, uh, sodomites and he's got usurers. I've chosen the word sodomites and used it carefully because we do have children in here. If you don't know what sodomites are, look it up in the dictionary or go back and read in Sodom and Gomorrah what the sodomites wanted to do. The usurers, these are people who would loan their money out to people in desperate need at extremely high interest rates. And for Dante, you've got two different things. You've got almost the opposite of each other, but they wind up in the same level of hell. Here's why he says it's the opposite. The sodomites take something that's meant to be fruitful and turn it into something that's barren and sterile and will never bear fruit. The usurers take money, which should be sterile and barren, and turn it into something that does bear fruit for them, though it shouldn't, by the excessive profits that they wring from it at the expense of those who are hurting. The eighth circle has ten pockets of people who are doing deliberate evil. And I don't have time to go into great detail, so I'm going to hit them briefly. Pump through them with me. First, you got your pimps. Now, he doesn't use that word, neither do the translators. 
That's what they are. Okay? These are guys who set up sex for profit. They're pimps. Okay? The pimps get whipped by demons for eternity because they spent their lives seeing that people's bodies were whipped or abused, in essence, to make their money. The flatterers. I was talking to someone this morning and giving a little flattery to them. And then I realized, ooh, that's not good. Um, <laughs> the flatterers spend eternity in human excrement. If we were writing this in 21st century parlance, it would be in bull excrement. But you get the picture. He's saying you spent your life shoveling it at others for your own good. You'll spend eternity living in it. Simoners. From Simon in, the, in Acts 8 or 10, 9, somewhere 8, 9, 10. Simon who tried to buy the power of God. Someone who, he's got a pope here too. Someone who's trying to use money to get godly power and control. And uh, these get buried headfirst in rock. Fortune tellers. I love this. Fortune tellers are the people who try to see into the future for profit. Sorcerers and fortune tellers. Do you know how they get to spend eternity for Dante? With their head on backwards, having to walk backwards to get anywhere. <laughs> to teach them they shouldn't have been trying to look so forward in life. Corrupt politicians. A lake of boiling tar. Enough said. <laughs> Hypocrites. Ooh, I didn't do that right, did I? Hypocrites um, spend life deceived, being told, you know, they think they're on a journey in hell and they're lost and everybody's telling them the wrong way to go because they were never truthful to themselves in life. Thieves, they lose their identity. They get bitten by snakes and turned into snakes and other things uh, because they stole from people. Uh, they lose their very essence. Um, uh, evil counselors get encased in flames. Um, dividers. This is interesting. Dividers, people who cause schisms, people who... The prophet Muhammad is there. His son-in-law Ali, his successor, at least in the Shiite order of things, is there. And I mean, old uh, Dante calls them out by name. He, he holds no punches. Um, and, and the dividers... A demon butchers them with a sword from right under the chin all the way down to the crotch. And then over the next couple of days they heal up. And as soon as they're healed, he butchers them again. And they spend eternity being torn asunder. Um, counterfeiters. They start contracting all these different diseases that they never would have had otherwise. Um, so you get that. Now, the ninth and final level of hell is a frozen lake. For Dante, the hottest part of hell is the coldest. It's like freezer burn. Things get so cold that sometimes there's nothing hotter than something intensely cold. And uh, in this, there are four levels of this final. The first one is, uh, uh, these, are, these are people who betray. Betrayers are in the deepest level of hell for Dante. The first one's called Cana. It's named after Cain, who betrayed his family, Abel. And people who betray their family are in that first level of the deepest circle of hell. The second one are, are people who betray their neighbors, um, the traitors to their country. 
and they're frozen. That's where this picture comes from. They're frozen in the lake with their head pointed up and they're crying because of the intense pain. But as they cry, the tears themselves freeze on their face and their hands are frozen so they can't wipe away the tears. Um, The third layer within this deepest circle of hell are for those who betray guests that come to their house. And then the fourth and final, the deepest part, the deepest pit of hell itself, called Judica, has, and I don't know how well this picture shows up, but it has Satan, and Satan's encased in in the lake of fire up to his waist, but he has wings, and he beats the wings massively to try to break free of the ice. But all that does is create the wind that's the bitter wind that permeates throughout all of hell. Satan has the three heads I told you about. And he's got uh, uh, in each head, left head has got Brutus, right head has got Cassius, both of whom betrayed Julius Caesar. Care to guess who is in the center head? The betrayer of history, Judas Iscariot. And he's, his face is, Judas's face is being devoured by Satan while Satan's uh, claws rake his back constantly. That's hell. Now, <clears throat> after hell, and by the way, Dante comes out on hell on Easter morning. He's written it to come out on Easter morning. So on Resurrection Day, Dante comes out of hell, and he goes next to Purgatory, Purgatorio in the Italian. Now, Purgatory, uh, uh, um, in the Catholic mentality, uh, uh, Protestants, 99.9% of Protestants do not believe in Purgatory. Um, uh, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, we've talked about in class a number of times as it's been developing, but it's the concept that these are people who are saved but who have a purging to go personally to be prepared to dwell in the presence of God. And so for purgatory, there are seven terraces. It's like up a mountain or up a hill. And these terraces are layered one right after the other. Now something interesting about purgatory here for Dante. Um, uh, In purgatory, you've got people who are guilty of much the same sins as people who are in hell. What's the difference? Forgiveness. People in purgatory are saved and part of the body of Christ. People in hell are not. So the sin that condemns people to hell for Dante In the forgiven people, that sin is still present, but it condemns them, if you will, to a purification in purgatory. Um, The first level are people, and these are actually, these seven terraces are built off the seven deadly sins. The first one is pride, and these are people who have stones on their back because they're all weighed down until they learn to cast aside their pride and to cast aside that which... Uh, 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 Hebrews 11 let's cast aside everything that weighs us down and run with endurance the race that's set before us these are people who didn't learn that lesson in life who are set to learn it uh, before they spend eternity in heaven Uh, the second level has got envy these are people who wanted everything that wasn't theirs and their eyes are shut so they can learn to want God and not what they see Um, uh, the next level is wrath Christians who are, are are domineered by their wrath and they have to spend this time smelling this burning foul odor 
that makes their eyes burn and everything else because really that's what our wrath does to people. Um, Next level, the slothful, the lazy. They spend purgatory running. (laughs) They're going to be in real good shape by the time they get to heaven. Um, The greedy and extravagant. See, remember, in, in hell, they're pushing the boulders around, right? In purgatory... They're immobile. They can't move. And they're lying face down until they learn to acknowledge that God is all that they need. They don't need to be extravagant or greedy with material things. God is what they need. The gluttons up in, you know, in hell, down in hell, they've got the bad rain coming down on them all the time. Uh, here, they're just real hungry. And real thirsty, and they're not able to drink because they got to learn to be satisfied with God. And they're actually standing real close to this really cold spring fountain. And they're real thirsty, and they can't have any. And it's interesting. It's not like in purgatory, you you get uh, uh, you know you get to where you're okay, and God says, "All right, you've done enough. You can bump up." You're on the honor system there. When you when you reach a point where you finally realize, you say, "Okay." I've done it. I, I understand now. And then you get to go on up. Um, the final one is lust. It's a wall of flame that burns the lust out of you. So that is purgatory for him. And last but not least, in the last couple minutes, paradise. He's got nine spheres of heaven. And uh, um, I knew I'd get out of time, and so uh, heaven's incredible. He can't vocalize a lot of it anyway. And the second uh, level, though, Beatrice gives him this incredible speech about God and why God came in Jesus in the sin of man. That's really good. It's a wonderful speech, theologically sound. I've put some of that in your lesson for you to look at. Here's an afternote for the life of Dante. Um, a final note. Sorry, notes kind of. See what this is. If you ever go to Ravenna in Italy, that's Dante's tomb. You can go see it. Say hi. Now, or you can go to Florence where he was exiled from. They don't have it, but they built him one anyway. They want him so bad. They've been negotiating with Ravina for hundreds of years. Please, we exiled him long enough. Let Dante come home. And Ravina says, no. However, in the spirit of Italian compromise, Florence is allowed to supply the oil for the lamp that burns in Ravina at the tomb of Dante. Points for home. We can read in the New Testament the story of Lazarus and the rich man. It's recorded in Luke 16. And that's the story where the rich man's got everything wonderful in life, all of the supplies, all the bountiful food. Lazarus, a poor man, would love crumbs from his table, but is not even entitled to the crumbs. Jesus says they die. Lazarus goes and sits in the bosom of Abraham. While the rich man goes into hell, looks up and sees Lazarus and says, Oh, please let Lazarus just dip his fingers in some water and come quench my thirst. No, there's a great chasm, a gulf. You have no hope. Nobody can bridge that gulf at that point, Jesus says. And then, then the rich man says, Well, can, at least you send someone, Father Abraham, to warn my brothers. Abraham says, no, even if someone came back from the dead, if they won't believe the prophets, they're not going to believe anything or anyone. Um, 
gives us a, a, a flavor, a biblical flavor of hell. That's not how the Bible talks about hell most. Mostly it talks about it in terms of being death. And uh, uh, it is a place of, of death and despair. And, and uh, um, uh, again, I underline Dante's purpose is not to teach us what the afterlife is like. His purpose is to motivate us in the current life and to slam some of the people that were mean to him. Um, you know, he didn't have the vengeful anywhere in there, and yet vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay in Romans. It's interesting. Um, we all have our shortcomings. All have our shortcomings, and we have all sinned, and we all deserve to go to the darkest depths of hell. And the fact that we don't is not because we're better than anybody down there. The fact that we don't is because Jesus Christ came and said, I'll descend to hell for you. I'll pay the price for your sins. Of course, the gates of hell could not stand against Jesus, either letting him in or letting him out, because he was perfect. And he rightfully reigns on high. But Jesus took our sins. And the nice thing about it is, is we don't get our, our get-out-of-jail-free card by um, how good we live by what we do, by, by how strong our theology is even. We get it very simply by the fact that Jesus paid the price and when we put our faith and trust in him, we're clothed in him and his righteousness. And it's his righteousness that delivers us. We don't spend eternity in hell because we spend eternity in Jesus. And Jesus does not dwell in hell. And that's what Jesus said at the end of John 3. You know, 3.16 is the verse we say so often. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. At the end of that chapter, Jesus says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath is rightfully on sinners. Christians... Though we sin and are the chief of sinners, have the righteousness of Christ. Make sense? Okay, let's pray. Lord, I do uh, come to you right now, personally and corporately, and, and I think we all acknowledge and confess to you that we are sinful people. Uh, I cannot read this, I cannot speak about this without recognizing various places in Dante's hell where I would rightfully belong. And I thank you so much for the forgiveness of those sins that I have in your son. And anybody out here who prays this with me, Lord, that, that we commit ourselves to you. We trust in your son for our righteousness. We want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own based on what we do, but that which comes through faith in your son. And uh, Lord, that's my prayer. I ask you to bless everyone in this class, and I thank you for the honor of being able to teach it. In Jesus, amen.